Uh, we are going to be in the Gospel of John, uh, continuing our study uh, there today. So if you want to turn to John chapter 19, we're going to look at the first uh, part of that chapter in particular. Uh, if you don't have a physical copy of the, uh, of the Scriptures, we do have some in the back. If you would like to use that, uh, that would be our gift to you. Uh, if, if you would want to uh, partake in one of those. <clears throat> As way of uh, introduction, we'll be getting into John 19, 1 through 16. Uh, over the past few weeks, we've been looking at uh, the arrest and then the trials of Jesus Christ as he is on his way ultimately to the cross. Uh, by the end of our passage here today, he will, uh, the verdict will be rendered and he will be delivered over to be crucified. But just to uh, help set some of the context, Jesus actually had six trials that he um, uh, were conducted around uh, his um, uh, accusers. Uh, they were three trials from a Jewish audience, which was uh, the high priests. Uh, I say high priest because uh, there was one un uh, appointed for life. The Romans removed Annas as the high priest, although he stood before him. Uh, they then took him to Caiaphas. That would have been the second trial. Uh, we also see him before the Sanhedrin. And so in front of a Jewish audience, uh, he would have had three trials. And then three trials in front of a Roman audience as well. So he went to Pilate. Pilate then took him to Herod who was uh, kind of uh, a similar in status as far as uh, high, uh, Pilate and Herod. And then now he's back in front of Pilate. Uh, last week, Pastor Tyler talked about um, some of that trial as well. And um, last week at the end of chapter 18, we see the crowds demanding that they don't release Jesus, but they release someone else instead of him. But that, that gives a little bit of the um, context of our passage today. In addition, um, a narrative passage like this is sometimes, I'll say, difficult to say, okay, what, what is the significance maybe of a passage like this for our life? And so what I want to do is uh, unpack the passage itself and then have a couple points of application at the end of the passage. But uh, the title that I chose for the sermon today is called The Humiliation and the Incarnation. <clears throat> the Humiliation and the Incarnation. Now, by incarnation, that's a word that we use a lot of times uh, with theological concept, right? It's this concept we see in John 1.14, uh, the beginning of John's gospel, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, the incarnation is God in human form. Incarnation literally means in flesh, right? Uh, we can talk about having incarnational ministries to one another, meaning that we're there and we're present uh, incarnational leadership, for instance. I teach leadership uh, over at Liberty, and we talk about an incarnational leadership. It's, it's that you're there, you're involved with your people. Certainly from a theological perspective, we'd say there's significance to the fact that God came down to us, right? Uh, the gospel accounts give us that story of Jesus in human flesh. However, added to that, is what theologians will talk about as the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. Okay? The humiliation and exaltation of Christ. And so picture this with me, all right? Can you all work with me here? Picture uh, a U, all right? A big U shaped, right? At one high point would be exaltation. Uh, at the bottom would be humiliation, and at the other high point would be exaltation. And so as theologians would talk about 
the significance of the work of Christ. They'd say there is a pre-incarnate glory that Christ has. I say, man, you're using some big words. Pre-incarnate, before the incarnation, Christ existed in glory with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. All right, pre-incarnate glory. John actually talks about this in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. There's a pre-incarnate glory, right? The second person of the Trinity existed prior to the virgin birth, right? Pre-incarnate glory. At the other end, we see this eternal glory that God has, that, that Christ has, uh, the eternal glory that uh, as you look at the book of Revelation, for instance, this is a writing of John as well in the book of Revelation 5.13. It says, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, he, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Pre-incarnate glory, eternal glory, right? It's the hope that we have. Jesus actually prayed to God the Father in John chapter 17. We spent some time right prior to Christmas talking about John chapter 17. And he prays to God the Father. He says, uh, restore that glory that I had with you before the world was. He's talking about pre-incarnate glory and the future eternal glory. However, today we're not talking about the high points of this you. We're talking about the low points of this. Not the exaltation, but actually the humiliation of Christ. So in coming to earth in the incarnation, in surrendering and submitting to human limitations, we see the humiliation of Christ. Uh, Paul talks about this in Philippians 2. It said he emptied himself, not of divinity, but of the uh, privileges that come with deity. And ultimately, we're going to see the low point of humiliation is the crucifixion. And so we are marching towards the crucifixion today, Lord willing, next week uh, we will talk specifically about the crucifixion itself. But the humiliation of Christ as part of his incarnation is the focus of today's sermon. To have one central point, I try to do that when I teach or preach, to say what is the central point of the passage. And so this is the central point of this passage. Jesus... The spotless sacrifice was delivered to be crucified. It really is that simple. Jesus, the spotless sacrifice, was delivered to be crucified. So let's turn to John chapter 19. I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. Uh, we'll pray and then we'll get into uh, looking at the passage in more detail. <clears throat> John chapter 19. Starting verse 1, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, the king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. 
The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivers me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat him down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away, for, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Christ, we thank you that we can read an account of the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. We pray this morning that you would give us wisdom that you give us understanding, that through the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would illuminate your word to us. We pray that as we sit under the teaching of your word, that we would be obedient, that we would have lives that are changed, God, and that as individuals and as a community of believers, that we would walk in faithfulness. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to look at three specific sections and then again have uh, some points of application at the end. So three sections, <clears throat> verses 1 through 6, humanity revealed. Verses 1 through 6, humanity revealed. Verses 7 through 12, or beginning of 12, divinity recognized. Verses 7 through 12, divinity recognized. And then the third section... Verses 12 through 16, a verdict rendered. So humanity revealed, divinity recognized, and verdict rendered. Section 1, humanity revealed. Notice in these first six verses of John chapter 19, the emphasis on the physical body of Jesus Christ. We talked about the incarnation, uh, the de deity of Christ, the divinity, and the humanity coming together, that God in human flesh we see in verses 1 through 6 an emphasis on the physical body of Jesus Christ. And so I want to just briefly talk about the aspects that we see here that John has recorded for us. First, the actual flogging of Jesus Christ or the scourging of Jesus Christ. Um, so in verse 1 of John 19, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Uh, as I was studying for this uh, morning there are, are actually, in the Roman uh, law, there would be three different levels of flogging or scourging that would have taken place, uh, each one a little bit more severe than the next level. And so the first level would be intended to be painful 
but not necessarily debilitating to the individual. And so it would be something that would be done maybe uh, to a criminal, but not someone who had committed necessarily a capital offense. And uh, the second level then would be a little bit more intense. And then the third level is, is likely what you've heard of before as people would describe the actual scourging of Jesus Christ. This third level would have been administered with a whip with straps on it. That would have pieces of bone or even metal. And they would literally beat across the back of the individual. They would be tied up so that their back would be exposed. Uh, it would be to the point where bones would be exposed. Uh, even organs, other things would be exposed from the victim at the severe beating that would be inflicted on them. Um, one commentator said literally the idea was to beat them half to death in order to hasten the expiration on the cross. Crucifixion was a very long process. Romans had perfected that, and so in the preparation for crucifixion, they would literally beat the individual half to death. Now, verse 1, this can be a little bit confusing. Verse 1 happens prior to the actual conviction of Jesus Christ. So it is likely in John chapter 19 verse 1 that the scourging that Jesus experienced at that time was probably the first level Probably a less severe flogging. That's not to say that it was easy But it was likely the less severe flogging However, a lot of commentators believe that there was actually two floggings of Jesus one in verse 1 of John chapter 19 and then verse 16 it simply says so he delivered him over to them to be crucified, and likely the events surrounding that delivering him over would have been the level three most severe flogging that we often read about. Uh, John, uh, John's gospel doesn't go into detail. Matthew and Mark, actually, uh, some of the wording that they use, it, it happens a little bit later in the process, and that's why commentators would believe that there were likely two floggings of Jesus. The second thing to notice is the crown of thorns. During this time, it's the Passover time, and so uh, the Roman officials would have been very aware of the potential in a religious festival for um, people to maybe riot a little bit, things to get a little bit heated, and so they would have brought in additional Roman presence of soldiers, and so there would have been a lot of soldiers there in Jerusalem during this time of the year. As you can imagine, uh, with increased level of soldiers there, and perhaps not a whole lot going on. There would have been some boredom, perhaps, happening there. And so the Roman soldiers took every advantage of that. We have a criminal now that is brought before us that we can uh, do the scourging. And they decide to mock him in a couple ways by things that they do. First is the crown of thorns. They, they would have twisted together, uh, depending on what branch they used or what um, tree that they would have used to get these thorns. Some suggest these thorns would have been as long as 12 inches. Uh, so we're not talking about a small little thorn bush that maybe you prick your hand on as you're walking through the woods. We're talking about a severe pain that would have been caused by this crown of thorns. Uh, certainly to mock Jesus in the claims of him being a king. You've likely seen uh, coins or other Roman um, emblems, right, with a, a king or someone who is highly decorated with kind of a crown of laurels on their head. This would have been a mockery of that to the person of Jesus Christ. It would have also 
been done to not just mock him, but to cause extreme pain. Uh, imagine a crown of thorns being pushed upon your head, upon your brow, uh, the blood that would uh, come from that, the uh, bloodied face, and just uh, the pain that would have resulted in that. Add to that then a third element. In order to mock him, they also put a purple robe on him. Uh, purple, of course, is a color of royalty. Uh, this is perhaps one of the soldiers' garments or something that they found lying around that they would have placed on him to uh, create quite a spectacle of Jesus. Uh, as they're doing this, of course, they're saying, Hail, King of the Jews! But even as you think about the robe itself and, and think that is more of a mockery of him, think of his back that is now bleeding from the scourging, uh, placing something upon that, uh, the blood drying, that garment being then ripped off of him as, as he was paraded in front of the crowd and then back into the headquarters of Pilate, back and forth from inside to outside. It would have been quite a sight. And it would have been something causing extreme physical pain. And then as, that, as though that's not enough, a fourth element that we see here is that they literally just started to beat him. It says that they struck him with their hands. Uh, Matthew and Mark record this and say actually they made a uh, mockery. They put a scepter in his hand, a staff in his hand, again mocking him as a king. And uh, Matthew and Mark said they actually used that as well to hit Jesus. And so we see this emphasis on the physical body of Jesus Christ. Some would even suggest Pilate lets all this happen to hopefully appease the crowd, saying, man, if we, if we beat this criminal, if we mock him, if we let them see how ridiculous he looks with a fake crown and this purple robe and his face now battered and beaten from the soldiers... Perhaps they will be appeased, but as we know, they are not. Verse 4 in John chapter 19 says, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, it says, wearing this crown of thorns, the purple robe. Pilate said, Behold the man, again, emphasis on the physical aspect of Jesus Christ, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Notice what Pilate says now again, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. His desire to appease this crowd, to maybe calm them a little bit, to get them off of this idea of capital punishment and crucifixion did not work. But notice, this is now three times that Pilate has said, I find no guilt in him. Last week, we looked at a passage of Scripture at the end of John chapter 18, where Pilate says the same thing in chapter 18, verse 38. And so Pilate was convinced, it seems, that Jesus was an innocent man. From a Roman legal perspective, Jesus was innocent. He had done nothing deserving of death. He was a spotless lamb that we would say in that context of what we're talking about, or he was blameless. Pilate knew this. Pilate had the authority to condemn him, and uh, he presented him to the people. So if there's any doubt, right, that with the word becoming flesh or God coming down, was, was he really human? The fact that he was allowed to be beaten and endured this suffering should put to rest any question that we may have 
about the humanity of Jesus Christ. So that's section one. The humanity of Christ was affirmed through what we see. It was revealed. The second section then, as we continue on in John chapter 19, verses 7 through 12, talks about the divinity of Christ being recognized. So the divinity of Christ recognized. By the time we get here, Pilate had had many interactions, right? The uh, latter part of John chapter 18 and here in John chapter 19, Pilate has many interactions with the religious leaders. There's kind of a back and forth with them. And so he was at his religious headquarters. He would actually go inside to talk to Jesus, and then he would come outside to talk to the crowds. We know that this was important to them because in John chapter 18, verses 28, uh, it said they didn't want to go into the Roman headquarters because they didn't want to defile themselves. So they stood kind of out in the courtyard or outside of that because they wanted to be able to participate in the Passover. And so he would go inside, talk with Jesus. He'd come back outside in order to talk with the religious leaders in the crowds. There's a back and forth exchange this whole time as he's talking to them. However, up to this point, we really don't have the actual charge against Jesus recorded in John's gospel. The closest we get, if you look in John 18, verse 30, when Pilate says, hey, what is the charge that you are actually bringing against this man? Their answer is, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Well, that's not really an answer. Uh, I could probably go into examples of raising children when you ask them something and they really don't want you to know the right answer, and so they kind of avoid the question. Um, the older you get, the better you get at this, right? So your boss asks you a question and you respond with a question. Uh, and it kind of throws them off, and if your boss is very smart, they push you for an answer. Well, here the crowd knew... Ah, this is kind of this thing with our own law. And, and, you know, hey, if you weren't doing things that deserve death, we wouldn't have brought him to you, Pilate. Trust us. Pilate, of course, has now examined Jesus. He's even caused some physical beating to Jesus from the Roman soldiers and said, you know, I've examined him and, and I find no guilt in him. But finally, we get in John chapter 19, verse 7, the actual charge against Jesus is revealed. Three times Pilate says, I find no guilt. And their response, finally, John chapter 19, verse 7, is this. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die. Why? Okay, because he has made himself the Son of God. Because he has made himself the Son of God. Now we actually get the charge that the Jewish leaders are bringing against Jesus Christ as they pre presented him to the Roman officials. Now most theologians would say this is probably them looking back at the book of Leviticus. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 24, verse 16, it said, Whoever blasphemes in the name of the Lord shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name of the Lord, shall be put to death. Notice the put to death should have been stoning. Uh, we actually have record of stonings within Scripture, but the religious leaders at this point want the Roman officials to uh, carry out the capital punishment. So although they are saying, yes, we have a law, he should be put to death, they're asking that that death be done from the Roman courts and not from the hands of the Jews. Notice Pilate's response, though. Once he actually gets the charge against him, 
actually hears what it is that they are bringing, that he is making himself out to be the Son of God. Verse 8 in John 19 says, When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Pilate, a little bit of the context here, Pilate would have not been considered necessarily a God-fearing man, as you and I would consider that term, right? He did not believe in the God of the Bible. He did not believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yet he would have been a religious man, in a sense. And uh, in, within the Roman understanding, there would have been many gods, right? A polytheistic uh, worldview. They would have believed in many gods. And in the Roman mindset, it, it would not have been uncommon for gods to come down and actually visit humanity in some way, shape, or form. So Pilate was understandably kind of spooked when he hears this guy standing in front of you that you can't find anything wrong with him. The actual charge against him is that he's claiming to be the son of God. Um, at this point, for one of the first times really in all of the Gospel of John, besides what we see with the crowds, some of the crowds, besides what we see with the, uh, the disciples, we have a Roman governor who actually says, what if they're right? What, what if he really is God? The, Rome, the, the Jewish officials can't see this, right? They're not even willing to ask the question, what if Jesus is God? But we have a Roman governor who says, what if this man Jesus really is a God? What if the gods have visited us and it scares him? So upon hearing the accusation... He goes back inside the headquarters, right? He's out there talking to them. Now he goes back inside his headquarters, and he starts to question Jesus. Verse 9 says, He entered his headquarters again and said to him, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And if you can imagine Pilate at this point, he's been back and forth. He's been talking to the Jewish officials. He's been talking to Jesus. Jesus is taken. He is beaten. He brings them out, hoping to appease them. It doesn't appease them. Uh, finally, they say this is the charge that we have against him. Pilate is uh, likely, maybe I'm projecting a little bit because I can get a little bit frustrated sometimes. Pilate is perhaps a little bit frustrated with this entire situation. And now he's a little fearful of what verdict he would render because maybe Jesus actually is a God. So in the context of Jesus now not answering him, where do you come from? Pilate perhaps in a little bit of frustration here in verse, um, uh, verse 10, Pilate says to him, you will not speak to me, right? Pilate kind of, you're not going to talk to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Now at this point, Jesus, who had remained very silent, we, we looked last week a little bit and just sang, right, Isaiah 53 about... Um, Christ and how he was silent before his accusers. But this is one of those things Jesus was not going to let slide. Right? Jesus had already had a conversation with Pilate previously. We see that in John 18. Uh, Pilate had questioned him on some things. Jesus had interacted with him. But when it came to a question of authority, Jesus was not going to let that slide. Jesus answered him in verse 11, you have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus said, hey, we're going to get one thing straight here. You don't have any authority. You may be questioning me, and you may have the title of governor, but I'm the real one questioning you. 
Uh, one commentary puts it this way. Although Pilate claimed authority over Jesus, that authority resided in God alone. Pilate was not in control of Jesus. And Jesus was not ready to let Pilate think he was. Indeed, despite the fact that Pilate believed he was the presiding judge, the evangelist, or John, here the author, makes it clear that Jesus was doing the judging. Furthermore, Jesus knew exactly where to lay the blame for the incidents leading up to and including this so-called trial. The prisoner was actually the judge, and the judges were, in fact, the defendants. Jesus was not going to let that slide. You do not have authority over me. And the response is kind of shocking in some sense. Pilate recognizing this, Pilate then kind of acknowledging this fact that there's something unique about this individual. I have, as a governor, he had likely seen all kinds of criminals, right? Probably begging for their life, probably making all kinds of excuses. Jesus standing here, being very silent in the face of accusations, but when it came to the claim of authority, said, no, we're going to set the record straight. And notice Pilate's response. At the end of the physical beatings of Jesus, he says twice, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. The Jews aren't satisfied. They bring their actual claim, saying he claims to be the son of God. Pilate gets a little bit afraid. He goes and talks to Jesus. Upon talking to Jesus, notice the first phrase in verse 12 that kind of ends this section. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. Pilate was, it's the idea of, at that point, Pilate was actually attempting to set Jesus free. Uh, I thought, I find it interesting in the book of Acts. You don't have to turn there, I'll turn there for us. But in the book of Acts, as Peter is speaking, in the book of Acts, this is after the resurrection, right? This is after um, uh, healing of a man in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 3, verse 13 it says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. Notice this, when he had decided to release him. Pilate wanted to set Jesus free. He examined him, the physical, I find no guilt in him. He's now spooked because this man might divine, be divine and he wants to release him almost actively seeking to do that. And so you might say, why was Jesus delivered to be crucified? The, the person who actually had that power from an earthly perspective uh, to, to deliver him says, I want to set him free. That is my desire. It's affirmed here in John's gospel. It's affirmed in the speech from Peter in the book of Acts. Well, um, clearly something changes Pilate's mind. So section three, the verdict rendered. The pivotal point in this passage is the next few words that come after it says Pilate sought to release him. You know, in scripture, there are passages that talk about sin. There are passages that talk about our condition. And, and we read these sometimes, but then there's a phrase that says, but God right? But God, and it changes everything. Well, well, this is a phrase in Scripture that kind of goes the other way, right? Pilate knew he was innocent. Pilate wanted to set him free. 
From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews. They cried out, and notice what they say. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. This is the turning point of the passage. And there's a couple uh, aspects here that, that I think are maybe not immediately apparent. So let me explain a couple of those things. First of all, what happened? Well, the accusation, the charge against Jesus actually changes from verse 7 to verse 12. And I think this is important for us to keep in mind. The charge in verse 7 against Jesus, why are you delivering him to be crucified, was that he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. This is a charge of blasphemy. This is contrary to the Jewish law. You should not blaspheme. Now, the religious leaders didn't take a step back and say, maybe he actually is God. As they're looking for the Messiah, they totally overlook the Messiah who is actually in front of them. But the charge in verse 7 is blasphemy. But notice the charge against him in verse 12. The, the, the questioning that they bring up. Anyone or everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. They've moved from a charge of blasphemy against the Jewish law to a charge of treason against the Roman law. Hey, Pilate, if you do this, you are now opposing the emperor. You're not a friend of Caesar. Pilate, you're a Roman governor. You have appointed there by Caesar. What happens when everyone finds out that you have now let a king exist within your realm? It's a different charge from blasphemy to treason. Couple that then with a second thing that is going on here that we don't have uh, specifically within this text, but we know from, uh, from history. Pilate had previously challenged the Jewish nation and lost. Okay? There were some blemishes in Pilate's rule as governor when it came with interacting with the Jewish people. So as the Roman um, uh, kingdom would, would uh, conquer uh, people, they would allow them basically to keep their religious affiliation. They would not make everyone have Roman gods. So the Jewish people would have been able to keep their um, uh, scriptures. They would have been able to keep their festivals and their feasts like we see them celebrating Passover here. But as long as it didn't create riots or anything like that. So Pilate, though, upon being put in as governor over this area, Pilate actually did a couple different things where he brought images of Caesar into Jerusalem. Well, we just went over on the screens, right, when we looked at our catechism, what is the second command? No graven images. So in the Jewish mindset, you cannot have images at all. And Pilate had brought some in, uh, some were on shields, for instance, to put in the, the headquarters there where he was. The Jewish leaders found out about it, and there was a bit of an uprising. Caesar found out about it, about it and instead of saying, hey, they're just going to have to deal with it, you know what he told Pilate to do? He said, take those things out of there. Why, why are you getting the people all stirred up? So Pilate had faced off against the religious leaders in the past and had actually lost. Caesar sided with the Jewish leaders in those other contexts. Add to that a third aspect, which again, not in the text, but we know from church history, and that is Pilate had a mentor that helped get him the position that he had. Sejanus was his name. Sejanus had been killed a couple years prior. You know why? Because Sejanus had uh, fell out of favor with Caesar, and so Caesar had him murdered. 
So in the back of Pilate's mind is likely all of these things happening. I've gone up against the religious leaders before. It has not gone well. My mentor who got me this position was considered hostile towards the emperor and was murdered. And so in an act of self-preservation, Pilate delivers Jesus over to be condemned. The Jewish leaders had found what they needed to get their conviction against Jesus. And once these words were spoken, the Jews had won. Things moved very quickly at this point. Verse 13, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat him at the judgment seat in a place called the stone pavement, Aramaic Gabbatha. This would have been very customary of that day, right? Uh, basically, uh, you know, we think of a courtroom and a judge sitting on an elevated uh, table making pronouncements. This would have been um, that, that version of that in the Roman society. John goes on to explain, verse 14, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So they delivered him over to be crucified. Pilate, in a last ditch effort, says, hey, this is your king. And notice the religious leaders' response, the hardness of their hearts, to the point where now they're even betraying their national heritage. They hated Jesus so much. We have no king but Caesar? I mean, read the Old Testament. Read the number of times that the prophets said, hey, like, God is your king. God is your king. And they hated Jesus so much that they're pledging allegiance to the Roman emperor at this point. That is the hatred that they had towards Jesus. So in an ultimate rejection of Jesus, it's now complete. And in rejecting Jesus as their king, they also rejecting God the Father as their king. And so verse, 19, uh, verse 16 just simply concludes they delivered him over to be crucified. Uh, next week, as I said, Lord willing, we'll be talking about the crucifixion of Jesus and the significance of that and how crucifixion was conducted in the Roman age. So as we conclude, I want to talk about a couple points of application. As I said today, the point really is that Jesus, the spotless sacrifice, was delivered over to be crucified. And so just a couple takeaways, I think, that we can process through here as we are looking at this passage. Application point one, knowledge is not enough. Knowledge is not enough. When we started this study, the Gospel of John now, a couple years ago, uh, we gave an overview and said, like, the purpose of John's writing is very clear because John gives us the purpose of his writing. So every one of these stories that have been put together, every one of these miracles, every one of these um, uh, uh, religious leaders um, questioning of Jesus, every one of these conflicts have all been put together for a particular purpose. John gives us that in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Uh, we know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke has other signs that aren't in John's gospel. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, or the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
So I want you to consider for a moment Pilate, who we've now spent two or three weeks talking about him and his interaction with Jesus. Consider the fact that Pilate was convinced that Jesus was innocent. Pilate was actually seeking to let him go. He did not want Jesus to be delivered over, to be crucified. And yet at the end of the day, Pilate, because of an attempting to save himself, delivered Jesus to be killed. Of, of all the things in this passage, the physical beating, you know, the crown of thorns, the flogging, and, and those things should make us think, right? Like somber, right? It, it's hard to maybe explain the significance of those. And John just kind of makes a statement, he was flogged. But there's so much, again, and those who would have read this originally would have understood the depth of what that meant. And yet in all of this, what gives me the most pause, I think, is, is when we think of someone like Pilate, who has standing in front of him someone who he knows is innocent and believes actually might be a god. And yet I'm going to make a decision to deliver him over because it's more beneficial to me in this moment. Let that sink in, because I think I do the same thing all the time. As, as I consider who Christ is and what he's done in my life, and yet for a momentary pleasure, I turn my back on Christ. I do it all the time. Consider not just Pilate, consider the religious leaders who had dedicated their life to following their interpretation of the scriptures. They were very sincere. They thought they had their theology right to the point where we are willing to deliver over anyone who would contradict what we believe is the correct interpretation of the word of God, right? They were sincere in what they believed, and yet they missed the entire point. And in doing so, they missed the Savior who was right in front of them. That, that scares me. How often do I get caught up in the wrong things and miss what Christ is doing? And we see Pilate, a religious, or sorry, a Roman leader, and we see the Jewish religious leaders doing the same thing. Knowledge is not enough. We must believe, and with that belief is an entire radical change of heart. Application number two, we can have confidence in our Passover lamb. Application number two, we can have confidence in our Passover lamb. Look back to John chapter 19, verse 14. There's this, this, this phrase, the statement inserted by John in verse 14 that wouldn't otherwise need to be there, right? You can read from verse 13 and go to verse 15, and the passage still makes complete sense. But John, for some reason, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says... Hey, you need to know that this was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. When, when an author of Scripture does that, you've you got to take a step back and say, why would they insert that phrase that, that wouldn't have to be there for the narrative to make sense? There's some question with it. So just, just so you're aware, some would say, is this the Passover meal? Is this the Passover week? I tend to think it's the actual Passover meal 
because of what the religious leaders say in John chapter 18. Like they didn't want to defile themselves so that they could celebrate the Passover and the significance of what we see here with the Passover itself. Now, what was the Passover? Remember the book of Exodus? Remember the plagues on the Egyptian people and how the Passover was the shedding of the blood of a lamb and the blood put on the doorposts so that the death angel would pass over and not kill the firstborn within that family. Uh, the significance of the exodus of God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. And it was now an annual celebration of the Jewish nation. And John connects what most would say is the most significant, most significant event in the Old Testament of the exodus of the people of God. John connects that with what is happening in this passage. So let me read this from a commentary that provides a, a little bit more of an understanding. Commentator says, I believe there is more to this sixth hour than just chronology. The designation, the sixth hour, is absolutely crucial for John because this was the time on the day of preparation when the Jews began their preparations for Passover in earnest. Any leaven in the house had to be collected and burned. Labor stopped at this time. And the major task of slaughtering the lambs in preparation for the Passover meal began. This would be an appropriate general time designation for the sentencing of the Passover lamb in keeping with the way John has presented his major theme of the Lamb of God and Passover throughout this gospel. The new exodus, God's deliverance was about to begin. The sacrificial lamb was being sentenced. If you look back at the beginning of John's gospel, we see John the Baptist seeing Jesus Christ in John 1, 29, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That is now about to be fulfilled as Jesus, the Passover Lamb, was being delivered to be crucified. And so I ask, as we look at the sufficiency of the Passover Lamb, why do, why do I look for salvation in things other than God at times? Why, don't, why do I not rest in the completed work of Christ as though something else or someone else could be sacrificed on my behalf? Why do I strive as though it's my own efforts that bring about salvation when the work of Christ has been completed? We don't have time to go into it this morning, but write down Hebrews chapter 10. Read verses 1 through 17, maybe this afternoon. And Hebrews chapter 10 is talking about uh, the sacrifice once for all of Christ and the theological significance of that, uh, reflecting on uh, the, the, the um, work of Christ on the cross. So may we rest in the work of Christ. May we believe John when he says that these things truly are written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by, by believing we would have life in his name. I'm going to invite the praise team back up as we close here this morning. Uh, I want to give you just a time to reflect. Uh, again, the two points of application in thinking through the significance of not just head knowledge, but a change of our posture and belief in Jesus Christ. And then the confidence that we can have that the spotless, perfect Lamb of God was sacrificed 
on our behalf and the work of Christ on the cross. Uh, we're going to sing today how deep the Father's love for us. And so as they uh, continue to prepare, let me read just kind of the last stanza of this song uh, for us to think about. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom.